One of my favorite Rilke poems is an uncollected piece of verse called Duim Voraus Verluna Gelipta. And this translates literally as You in advance lost beloved. Or as Edward Snow renders the first line in his bilingual edition of the poems, You the loved one lost in advance. Lost in advance? Surely one would need to first have, or at the very least be in contact with a person before losing them. Or maybe we are in the realm of existential self-relating here, the absence of an undefined yet deeply felt missing connection to one's own life or self or to some other higher power. But mainly the poem reads as the dashed hopes of Eros, the mourning for a future that one had envisaged but never came to pass and maybe never will. The kind of person or relationship you had once hoped for but have never experienced or have but only briefly. That unattainable, idealized you of Eros, the you of pop songs and romantic comedies. Like this one from 1994 called Only You, featuring Robert Downey Jr. as Peter Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T, Mr. Wright, get it, who aspires to be the significant other of the charming yet somewhat ditzy Faith Corvatch, portrayed by Marisa Tomei. As her name suggests, Faith is a firm believer in prophecy and fate. When she was 11, she learned the name of her true love, Damon Bradley, from an Ouija board and is now travelling through Italy with her pal Kate in pursuit of her dream lover. I'm going to help you out, okay? Oh, then this is a personal matter. What's his name? I'll look into it for you. If you it's just very nice of you to offer, but... Why would you just tell me his name? Damon Bradley. I'm Damon Bradley. Uh, got a minute? As they walk through Rome together, Peter, pretending to be George, tries out all the best chat-up lines at his disposal to woo Faith. Isn't, Isn't it amazing? amazing? Oh, wow. Problem, Susie. So you're too yeah. pretty and I'm too nervous. I can't even... Come on. Can't you... I want to see. You are here. Yes, I'm here. You're here. I'm very real. Oh, what am I trying to think of? There's this poem by um, Gota. Yeah, Gota. And it's about two people who come from different places, but they hear the same bird singing. Perhaps the same bird echoed through both of us yesterday, separate in the evening. That's it. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. Was Rilke? Rilke? Mm. Oh. Well, same country. Right. How'd you know that? <laughs> I, I could tell you some things. The poem in question, still being recited 70 years later by a Hollywood heartthrob, was written by Rainer Maria Rilke, not Goethe, in Paris in the winter of 1913, a period of intense creativity and transformation in his life, pivotal to the development of his poetic voice and philosophy. 
During this time, he was also working on the poems that would be published a decade later as the Duino Elegies, which like Duim Voraus Verlona Gelipta, also tussles with the distraction of expectation, as he puts it in Elegy 1, quote, as if every event announced a beloved, a star, a wave, an open window, a violin yielding itself to our hearing. All of this depicted in Stephen Mitchell's translation of the Elegies as a mission, resonating deeply with his experienced internal reality. How does one make space inside the self for another, he asks, with, quote, all the huge, strange thoughts inside us, going and coming and often staying all night? Let's listen to a recital of Duim Voraus in order to soak up some of its flavour. Here it is being recited by the German actor and director Jürgen Gosler. I'll read you Edward Snow's translation in English after every few lines. Du im Voraus verlorene Geliebte, nimmer gekommen. You, the loved one lost in advance, you who never arrived. Nicht weiß ich, welche Töne dir lieb sind. I don't even know what sounds you like best. Nicht mehr versuche ich, dich, wenn das Kommende wogt, zu erkennen. So I try to discern you. Alle die großen Bilder in mir, im fernen erfahrene Landschaft, Städte und Türme und Brücken und unvermutete Wendung der Wege und das Gewaltige jener von Göttern, einst durchwachsenen Länder, steigt zur Bedeutung in mir deiner Entgehende an. All the great images in me, the landscape widening far off, cities and towers and bridges and unsuspected turns in the path and the forcefulness of those lands once intertwined with gods, they all mount up in me to signify you forever not here. Ach, die Gärten bist du. You are the gardens. Ach, ich sah sie mit solcher Hoffnung. Ein offenes Fenster im Landhaus. Und du tratest beinahe mir nachdenklich heran. With such hope I saw them, an open window in the country house, and you almost stepped out pensively to meet me. Gassen fand ich. Du warst sie gerade gegangen. I found streets. You had just walked down them. Und die Spiegel manchmal der Läden der Händler waren noch schwindlig von dir. And sometimes the mirrors in the merchant's shop were still drunk with you. Und gaben erschrocken mein zu plötzliches Bild. And with a start reflected my too sudden image. Wer weiß? Ob derselbe Vogel nicht hinklang durch uns gestern, einzeln, am Abend. Who knows if the same birdsong did not ring through both of us yesterday, each of us alone at evening. Whenever I recite this poem, 
I recall the scenes and embodied sensations of summer 2019, walking around the Kent countryside with Max. Perhaps it was Otford to Ainsford, with its various climbs up and down over the North Downs, along the River Darrant, taking in a couple of country castles en route. And was that a Roman villa? Yes. Or maybe a ramble around the farm fields, paddocks, orchards and country parks of the Medway Valley near Tombridge, pausing for a heart-stopping, art-filled visit to the All Saints Church in Tewdley, with its gorgeous stained glass windows created by Marc Chagall just before his death in 1985 at the age of 98. If I remember correctly, I was learning at the time a whole bunch of Rilke's lonesome and yearning poems, but this is the one I still think about the most. In Rilke's writings, the you initially seems to embody a specific individual, often perceived as a love interest or a personal muse a tangible, distinct figure to whom emotions and thoughts are directed. However, as one reads on, his you starts to become increasingly elusive and multifaceted, as much an idea, an emotion, a spiritual entity, or even an aspect of the self than a distinct embodied person. Rilke died at the age of 51 in the Valmont Sanatorium in Switzerland from what is now thought to be leukemia. The more romantic, poetic, and not entirely apocryphal story was that he was slain by a beloved, a rose. Towards the end of his life, the great and the good would visit the renowned poet, and one such visitor was Nimet Eloi Bey, a famous model and wife of a wealthy Egyptian railroad tycoon. Nimet had posed for Lee Miller and Man Ray, and was the first non-Western model to feature in the pages of American Vogue. To honour her arrival, Rilke gathered some roses from the garden of the medieval chateau of Mouzeau, which his patron, Werner Reinhardt, rented and placed at his disposal. Whilst doing so, he pricked his hand on a thorn, which then became infected, his entire arm soon swelling up and turning septic. In retrospect, we can now see this as a kind of metaphorical embrace of the you that he would pull close to him in the last few weeks and months of his life, a you who will carry all of us away in her asphyxiating embrace, the last you we are ever conscious of. A few years before Rilke's death, a Jewish-German philosopher called Martin Buber would publish a book called Ich und du, I and you, or you and I if you prefer, me and you. I've been so many places in my life and time. Although, as is often the case, his first translator, his first English translator, Ronald Gregor Smith, somewhat portentously rendered the title as I and thou. But this is not a portentous book. If anything, it seeks to understand something very simple the nature of the connection, the and, if you like, of an I and a you. To differentiate the I-you connection from our more common I-it interactions with the world and everyone in it, consider this. Imagine if the world, our planet itself, resonated at an I-you level in our hearts and minds. Sadly, for most of us, this doesn't seem to be the case, 
The basic word IU, Buber explains at the beginning of the book, and notice for that for Buba, IU is a single word rather than two individual pronouns. This can only be spoken, he says, with one's whole being. What does that mean? He contrasts this with the basic word of I-it, which is to say the relationship or interaction with an object or a person that we are treating as an object or a concept. And this, he says, can never be spoken with one's whole being. This is because the I-it relationship lacks the personal, reciprocal engagement that characterizes the I-you connection. In the I-it dynamic, the it is perceived as a separate entity, devoid of mutual existence or shared experience. The it is an object of thought or utility, not a partner in dialogue. This distinction underscores Buber's as well as Rilke's philosophy, that true understanding and connection occur only in the I-U encounter, where both entities fully recognize and affirm each other's existence. It's a, it's a lovely romantic notion, though, of course somewhat unattainable, perhaps we might say due to the issue or quandary, if you like, of having a personality. Well, I've been a lot of places in my life and time I've sung a lot of songs and I made some bad rhymes. You don't need to be a psychologist or psychiatrist to diagnose that we all have personalities. Also to diagnose that those personalities are somewhat fundamentally split. How could they not be for creatures with bifurcated brains? I've got to get a grip on myself, an inner voice cautions in a moment of panic or high emotion. But who or what is that voice, and which other part of us is it speaking to? Acted out my love in stages With 10,000 people watching One way of thinking about this split is that there is almost always a self-conscious I inside us, engaging in an ongoing dialogue or relationship, if you like, with a more expansive you, an internal you in this case, which maybe we can also call self, otherwise it gets confusing. Now we're alone and I am singing my song for you. Consider the I as akin to a child or some other under-resourced and constrained part of us. The I of the ego cage, as I like to call it. The I that is motivated and operated unconsciously and for the most part according to a personality style algorithm. Just like that of the Enneagram. You know, this little piggy went to market but that little piggy stayed home. Or to apply a similar framework to the nine motivational styles of this personality system that I'm fascinated with. One seeks perfection, a path so true. Twos give love and try to help you. Threes shine and succeed in all their pursuits, whilst fours uniqueness in depth has its roots. Five seek knowledge, a world to explore. Sixes find safety in trust evermore. Sevens chase joy, life's never a bore, whilst eights wield power with a lion's roar. And what about nines? Nines seek peace in harmony's embrace. In the Enneagram dance, each finds their place. That's a little poem written by me and GPT-4.
we find our place mainly through left hemisphere brain functioning, which is responsible for creating language and thus narrative. The ego tends to discharge itself through narrative patterns, which we might also call stories. Whenever we use the word I, we are telling a story, even as simple a one as I couldn't find any all-pro soya milk at the supermarket this morning, so I bought my less favorite brand. Once these narrative patterns, these stories about ourselves and others are established, it becomes challenging, to say the least, to disengage from them. This rigidity in narrative formation can, of course, limit our perspective and understanding, much like a child's view can be limited by their diminished experiences and resources. The self, however, emerging predominantly from the right hemisphere, from right hemisphere functioning, can more be likened perhaps to a wise parent or teacher or protector, a kind of holistic you. This concept, rooted in Jungian psychology and now supported perhaps by neuroscience, contrasts with the more limited eye corresponding to that egoic dimension. Right hemisphere self, right hemisphere you, we might say, strives for wholeness and integration, seeking closeness, connection and cooperation, and mirroring the archetypes by doing so of a loving or protective parent, a one true friend, a teacher, a therapist, or even a transpersonal entity or deity, reflecting a deeper, more encompassing aspect of the psyche. Now we're alone and I'm singing the song to you. just do a little catch-up on human evolution in order to situate this evolving sense of self or this you in the human dimension, which appears to go like this. Eight million years ago, a certain kind of primate could be found swinging around the branches in the forests of Africa in an area known as the Great Rift Valley. Over time, this region experienced massive tectonic shifts as mountain peaks began to rise in the west, blocking off much of the rainfall further east. So what was once a vast, forested region gradually began to turn into an open savanna with a more variable climate, and the primates who were stranded on this open savanna had to start learning new ways to adapt to their dangerous and changeable surroundings. Open savanna, less trees, Understandably, over time, we could no longer get around by swinging through the treetops like gods or birds of prey. The proto-humans wandering around the savanna were now extremely vulnerable to those giant saber-toothed tigers and other equally powerful and hungry creatures prowling the same terrain as us. Food was no longer that easy to procure. Most of us perished, but a lucky and perhaps also ruthless few survived and developed new skills. The descendants of those primates that remained in the western forests are known today as chimpanzees and bonobos, still swinging around and doing their thing. The descendants of those that survived the new challenges, however, of their unpredictable deforested landscape 
are known today as human animals, or Homo sapiens, if you prefer. Of course, we were not the only proto-human species wandering around the savannah at that time, trying to make a go of it as bipedal tool-using apes, but thankfully, we managed to exterminate all the other proto-humans vying for survival, leaving only us. Hooray! Alone with ourselves. And that, it would seem, is how we spent the next eight million years, taking over the world, Gordon Gecko style, and doing a number on everyone else, as well as ourselves, in the process. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all of its forms. Greed for life, for money, for love, knowledge has marked the upward surge of mankind and greed, you mark my words, will not only save Teldar paper, but that other malfunctioning corporation called the USA. Thank you very much. The split between I and self, or I and you, most likely occurred early in human evolution and is viewed by many as one of the defining characteristics of humanity. The experience of life as a pure self is an intrinsic part of animate consciousness, which is all about process and lived experience, perceived mostly, as I'm arguing here with a nod to the work of Ian McGilchrist on this topic, in the right hemisphere of the brain, that complex array of feelings, impulses, urges, sensations and primary emotions that we share to a large extent with other animals. At its most fundamental level, the sense of being a self and the animate intelligence arising from this sense most likely exists in one form or another in every living organism. This is because self involves basic biological regulation, our somatic experience of the here and now, this sensation of being alive, which might very simply be described as sentience or presence or essence. In this fundamental way, we share this sentience, this presence, this essence with, with everyone and everything. If I kill the you in a chicken or a turkey or a spider, I am killing my sentient you, a family member if you like, another being, another self. Animate consciousness is unique and very, very real compared to conceptual consciousness in that it exists solely in the present. This is it, here and now. Which is why therapists are always saying stuff like, and where do you feel that in your body? But this is also why sex and masturbation, right, can be quite consoling acts to carry out. Where are you when having sex, at least enjoyable sex, completely in your body, connected in a weirdly intimate and primal way to another creature or to yourself? Total right hemisphere functioning. The apogee of this, of course, being the orgasm. 
For even if the left hemisphere DJ continues to chatter away, the right hemisphere is always present and fully alive, somatically alive, which no other aliveness can ever really match up to or rival. So when exactly does the eye show up in this 8 million year version of human history? Many experts in the field attribute the origins of the eye to the complex social interactions that were needed by those ancient pre-human communities in order not to be wiped out by their eco-changing circumstances and ground-level predators who now had you know, greater access to eating us up for dinner. I've been so many places in my life and time. When hominids first diverged from those forest-dwelling primates in the Great Rift Valley of East Africa, we all needed to work very, very closely together in tight-knit communities in order to survive this new, dangerous environment. Those with the cognitive abilities to cooperate effectively with their companions were most successful in passing their genes on to future generations. This is also where a more head-based understanding of others as conceptual yous started to develop. An important part of this distinctively human social intelligence that emerged is also sometimes referred to as theory of mind. The recognition that other people have minds, just like we do, allowing us to guess how they might respond by mentally putting ourselves in their situation. A child empathetically offers their toy to a friend who is upset over losing theirs. This is theory of mind. Also, children engaging in pretend play, serving each other mud pies, everyone in the group understanding that they and their playmates are engaging in, in the pretense, all at once real as well as unreal. Or think of adult interactions where we often predict and respond to others based on our beliefs and past experiences. This could be as simple as refraining from bringing up a topic that we know will upset someone else or anticipating how our words or actions might affect them in a given context. Such an ability is clearly crucial in forming and maintaining social bonds. Put 90,000 bonobos in Wembley Stadium at a Jacob Collier or Billie Eilish concert and mayhem and slaughter will follow. But 90,000 human bonobos in a similar position, all with different but similar enough versions of theory of mind, as well as a, you know, a strong symbolic left hemisphere story, a sort of devotional affiliative story. Everyone here loves this pop star just like me, therefore everyone here is kind of like me. So to kill someone for spilling some beer on my new jacket, well, that wouldn't really go down well, would it? Each morning I get up and die Can't barely stand on my feet Take a look in the mirror and cry Lord, what you been doing to me? I spent all my days to believe in you But I just can't get no relief, no Humans are not alone among primates in having this type of social intelligence, but we've clearly had it developed in us to a much greater degree. Once we see others as separate selves, as 
use, if you like, whom we can evaluate and tell stories about, it's then really just a simple hop, skip and a jump to realizing that they see us in a similar way. And so to begin imagining how we might appear not only to them, but also to other parts of ourselves. Neuroscientists have discovered that the same part of the prefrontal cortex is activated when people think about the attributes of others as when we think about our own personal characteristics. This suggests that in terms of brain functioning, specifically synapses and neurochemical activity, the concept of self, whether it pertains to oneself or someone else, is processed in a remarkably similar way within our brain's grey matter. This also underscores a fundamental aspect of our social intelligence, bridging some of the often yawning gaps between self-perception and our understanding of others. The emerging awareness of myself as a you, a you in conversation with the ego, the I, as well as with other egos, other yous, brings into our growing consciousness a whole new array of complex emotions, such as social anxiety, embarrassment, shame, pride. As a child becomes more aware of herself, she realizes that she too has the ability to exert some control over how her self acts, whether to pay attention, to try harder, or to just let go and bawl in frustration. This developing skill is sometimes called metacognition. The ability to introspect and influence one's mental states, especially our own mental states. And we do this by cultivating or amplifying, we might say, the self's sway over the eye. And so the child's eye journey commences. An enduring quest in terms of its relationship with its own inner you, itself, but also with all the other external yous. I meet you, you meet me. Hello. Somebody, somebody, anybody find me? Somebody love. So, who exactly is this I? Not surprisingly, I encapsulates those parts of my consciousness that are distinctively human as well as distinctively left-brain-centric. The I arises from a conceptual consciousness with its ability to think through language in abstract thoughts. The I is therefore an emergent property of conscious awareness, continually observing the self's more silent feelings, impulses, sensations, intuitions, and stepping in, as it were, to categorize, judge, and explain all of this stuff, the inner stuff of the human animal, we might say, to another or to the I itself. Imagine that I'm interviewing you. I ask you to sit down and I say, so tell me a little bit about you. What comes to your talking mind when I say this? Most likely, we enter some kind of I mode to respond. You might say, I'm a psychotherapist, and in my spare time I write and make podcasts, or something like that. So what we do is we, we kind of abstract our day-to-day -day responsibilities and activities into conceptual categories that we assume the other, who is part of the same egoic cultural matrix as we are, will 
understand and resonate with us in some way. I am just a poor boy, though my story's seldom told. I have squandered my resistance for a pocket full of mumbles, such are promises. We might even go on to say, I was born in a small town near Johannesburg called Benoni, and I moved to the UK when I was a teenager. I've been in London for a few decades, but one day I'd like to move closer to the countryside. This exhibits another crucial attribute of our I, mental time travel. While the self only exists in the present moment, the I is capable of remembering all kinds of details about previous selves and also imagining what future selves might get up to or feel like. The I is the podcaster, we might say, the self, the listener. The self has no need to make podcasts. The self is quite happy just sitting on the edge of the bed, staring at the fake wood grain of an Ikea cupboard and feeling the resonance of this pattern in the very cells of its body. But then, of course, the eye will always come along and insist on sweeping all of this up into sentences and paragraphs so as to make something of the experience. The eye is not just telling a story about the past, it is also actively constructing the story of the future through the way it interprets the past and the choices it makes in the present. The self may be constantly changing, but its needs are usually fairly simple, even primal. The self wants you, me, and itself to feel secure, comfortable, loved. When it's hungry, it wants food. When it's tired, it wants to rest. When it's sad, it wants to feel that it is loved and understood. The I, on the other hand, develops an orientation towards more complex needs, many of which it absorbs from the surrounding culture. In our current society, the I is often seen as a construct deeply ingrained with psychotherapeutic and psychological concepts. Talk to an I and they will now use terms like healthy boundaries, self-actualization, emotional intelligence and personal growth. The I who talks to me from my clients or patients often tells me that they are ADD or ADHD or neurodivergent in some sort of way. At some level, the I has to be neurodivergent, to use that current buzzword, so as to distinguish itself from the other 7.9 billion eyes on this planet who are all focused 24-7 on getting their eyes listened to, respected and even obeyed. Ego psychology has shown us over the last 100 years that the I is primarily engaged in I aggrandizement, seeking external validation, maintaining illusionary control over life events, perpetuating self-centered narratives, resisting change to preserve comfort, prioritizing our individual desires over collective or relational needs, sustaining defensive mechanisms to avoid vulnerability, upholding cultural and societal constructs of success, whilst all the time <laughs> clinging to whatever constructed identity we've created for ourselves online and off, as opposed to, for want of a better word, authentic self-expression, which might very possibly have nothing to do with language anyway. Hence, perhaps, the profound resonance of music. You may recognize this flurry of notes as the opening bars of Leon Russell's A Song For You. To my ears, this segment, whilst undeniably beautiful, 
teeters almost on the edge of atonal, especially if you consider the genre in which the song is usually assigned the 1970s romantic ballad. There is something a little lopsided in the falling cadences of these notes, as if someone accidentally had bumped into a jar of flowers on a side table, all eyes in the room fixed on the to-and-fro wobble. Will the jar and all its flowers topple, or be miraculously caught by some invisible hand of gravity? This sense of precarious balance may well stem from Russell himself, embodying and personifying the song in a manner that intertwines with his very essence, with all the words he's written to convey that I who starts singing in the first line. I've been so many places in my life and time I've sung a lot of songs, I've made some bad Russell was born on April the 2nd, 1942, with something known then as spastic paralysis, which is now called cerebral palsy. He suspected the doctor who delivered him using forceps might have caused the injury. This birth damage resulted in some limited neurological connections, causing a lifelong limp and partial paralysis of his right side. Russell's condition made him, quote, very aware of the duality involved in our plane of existence here. My chops, this is Russell talking, my chops have always been sort of weak because the right side of my body was paralyzed a little bit. I have damaged nerve endings on the right side, so my piano style comes from designing stuff I can play with my right hand. One of these unique refrains that was improvised in the studio as the tape rolled is of course this one this somewhat classical-sounding cascade of piano notes, which also sonically creates that same feeling as when the lights go down in a theatre and the curtain starts to rise. What intrigues me most in this song is the fragile tonality and vibrato of Russell's voice. Take even that first line. I've been so many places in my life and time. It's as if he's trying to encapsulate his whole life until then, about three decades of it, in the phrase life and times, which fills the same amount of musical space in three syllables as the first seven syllables of the song filled those first four bars. Instead of there being some silence after the phrase, the word time is allowed to slide quasi-melismatically, all over the place, like a, like a scoop of vanilla ice cream dropped onto a hot tarmac by an over-eager, as well as quite possibly maladroit, small child. I like to think that Russell's whole life flashed before him as he floats through that word, time, in the first line of the song. I've been so many places in my life and time Time in this song, as in a moment of loving connection, can stretch four bars into one bar or no bars, just as Jesus turned one loaf of bread into many to feed the multitudes and then turned all of those nourishing slices back into nothing again as they exited the rear ends of those hungry souls who had fed off him spiritually as well as animalistically, we might say. I've acted out my love and stages 
Russell was born in a place called Apache, Oklahoma, population 1,100, a quarter of whom were Native American, the other three quarters exterminated during the white settler land runs of 1889. His own lineage was mainly Irish with a dash of Cherokee. Leon Russell's first words, spoken later than most children, round about the age of three, were, writes Bill Janovitz, his biographer, the following. What's the matter, little birdie? You cry? Who, if I cried out, would hear me among the angels' hierarchies? And even if one of them pressed me suddenly against his heart, I would be consumed in that overwhelming existence. For beauty is nothing but the beginning of terror, which we still are just able to endure. And we are so awed because it serenely disdains to annihilate us. Every angel is terrifying, and so I hold myself back and swallow the call note of my dark sobbing. Ah, whom can we ever turn to in our need? Not angels, not humans, and already the knowing animals are aware that we are not really at home in our interpreted world. And thus began his obdurate drive to overcome his disabilities at the piano, imagining himself strapped to the front of a train that would run straight into the face of a cliff if he made a mistake during practicing. He also played cornet in the elementary school band, which would one day allow him to provide us with that haunting French horn melody which runs through a song for you quietly but insistently as the self accompanies the eye. Maybe as the word time extends itself over those four bars, Leon once again catches a glimpse of himself at the age of 14, now living in Tulsa and captivated by Elvis singing Hound Dog at the Tulsa Fairgrounds in 1956. Friends, as a great philosopher once said, or maybe he sees himself four years later buying a coach ticket to LA with a $40 loan from a friend where he would ultimately land a job as a piano player in a club named Sun Valley Rancho. Or maybe he's experiencing the last decade of his life in which he gradually integrates himself into a growing circle of top-tier session musicians in Hollywood, known variously as the regulars, the clique, or the guys, playing with Phil Spector, and all of those greats of the time. And here he is now, in the first year of this new decade, playing that inimitable intro on his favorite piano in LA, a Steinway Grand kept at the A&M Studios, the same 1924 Steinway on which Carol King recorded Tapestry and Joni Mitchell recorded her album Blue a piano which would later clear something like $120,000 when it was sold at Christie's in 2018. 
a very special piano for a very special song, whose mix is so sparse and clear that you can hear the studio door closing about two seconds into the track. Listen. And even more importantly, that very quiet murmur of Russell playing the French horn throughout, giving that reflective and deeply melancholic undertone to the whole song. We were alone and I was singing this song for you We were alone and I was singing my song as Leon Russell's temporal voyage culminates, it also poignantly echoes a historical truth. For the average human lifespan, until very recently, barely surpassed that of 30 years. This is reflected in the early onset of fertility in us human animals, typically as we enter our second decade. From an evolutionary perspective, spanning millions of years, perhaps we are all destined to be replaced around the age Jesus died, 33. Imagine a world where everyone only had 33 years to live. Would not our perspectives and priorities shift dramatically? In a world capped at a 33-year lifespan, the emphasis on assets and material gains, typical of late-stage capitalism, might shift towards sustainability and equitable distribution, prioritizing community, well-being and the impact of our human-animal legacy over any individual accumulation of wealth. Upon initial listening, this song like many works of art driven by emotion, can appear somewhat awkward, perhaps even excessively raw in its delivery. The voice stretches or pushes itself into uncharted, unreserved realms. I love you in a place where there's no space and time. I love you for my life, you are a friend of mine. As creatures inclined towards safety, this openness might seem jarring, even a little bit cack-handed. Yet for some, possibly the romantics among us, who have this compelling urge to bring the innermost self or I or whatever it is into the light, it's the very cracks in Russell's voice and his performance overall that in some way are also the most meaningful aspects of this song. I think this is something to do with the word vulnerability there's no one more important to me darling can't you please see through me cause we're alone now and i'm singing this song to you vulnerability perhaps because it refuses to hide what it wants or needs tries to bring us closer to our most innate goals or objectives as human beings closer we might say, to a you. For some, this you could represent sex, for others it's money, and for some weird people like me and Rilke and Russell, it's about understanding or a kind of communion. Every I, which is to say every ego formation in the Enneagram system that I'm so fond of, conceives of the you quite differently. The idealized other is often really just a perfectible or improved version of the self, if you stop to think about it. 
This is what Russell, I think, is trying to get at in the next verse of the song, when he begins to describe his you, whether it was a lover or a friend, as having held him to his best self until he was perhaps let go of for being too much of an eye. Now know your image of me is what I hope to be I treated you unkindly but darling can't you see there's no one more important to me darling can't you please see through me the line that hits me hardest is the one that goes so darling can't you please see through me On one level, he might be asking for someone to hold him accountable, but maybe, more fundamentally, someone who can see through him, as I understand it, perhaps means to perceive every layer of him, to understand the contrasts of light and shade within the ego cage that is Leon Russell, that interplay of creativity and disorder, his smooth as well as his discordant elements, and still after having seen all of this, desire to be connected to him in some way. This desire exists without concrete reason, leading us to ascribe it to mystical concepts such as love, or that more psychological term, attachment. Of course, this too is all part and parcel of the ego cage, but at times it does seem to go beyond it, which is why we as a species cannot stop writing about love, singing about love, and marveling at what can be achieved when two truly loving creatures collaborate in what we might call a friendship or a relationship. However, not everyone is comfortable with such transparency. Many find it invasive and unsettling. Instead, they might opt for the introspective work often undertaken in psychotherapy, resembling archaeologists delicately excavating the self with fine brushes, sifting through childhood remnants or other life events in order to, well, in order to what? (laughs) Do the work. This meticulous process, I guess, has the aim of revealing our essence, akin to glimpsing a bed of beautiful coral through a glass-bottomed boat. For many, such depths of intimacy is reserved only for the one whose response they can in some sense control, where they are paying, in this case, for a specific role to be played. Vulnerability, for most of us, equates to overstepping boundaries, an exposure too profound for comfort. Why choose vulnerability when, as human beings, we are inherently fragile, whether we're parading ourselves on red carpets or using one of the 50 ways to leave our lovers, we are always ultimately susceptible to the whims of fate, a lethal blood clot or a sudden unforeseen illness, just like any other creature. Embracing vulnerability, as Russell does in this song, requires inspiration in the truest sense of the word, derived from the Latin inspirare, meaning to breathe or blow into. Originally, this signified a divine or supernatural being imparting truth or ideas as essential to us as the very act of breathing. And this, I think, is where we might circle back to Rilke, maybe more so the Rilke of the Duino elegies, which begins with that incredibly vulnerable admission, uh, here in Stephen Mitchell's translation, who, if I cried out, would hear me among the angels' hierarchies? 
Who? Well, presumably you. <laughs> but who is that you? Well, it's you, the loved one, lost in advance, discoverable, if at all, within the inner echoes and resonances left by the external world's impression upon us. Communion in this poem doesn't arise directly, but through the shared experience of a third element, like that birdsong resonating within the two individuals who are geographically apart, but somehow together, at least conceptually. Whoever says you does not have something for the object, writes Buber in the opening pages of I and Thou. Wherever there is something, there is also another something. Every it borders on another it, but that is only by virtue of bordering on others. But where you is, there is no something. There is no it. You has no borders. Whoever says you does not have something. They have nothing, but they stand in relation. Buber goes on to present three spheres in which the world of relation, the world of you, arises. The first is life with nature, where the relation, quotes, vibrates in the dark and remains below language. Next, life with others, where relation, at least to Buber, is manifest and enters language. And finally, the you of the spirit, where we hear, know you, and yet feel addressed. So we answer, creating, thinking, acting. I've been thinking and creating and putting these messages in a bottle that some people call podcasts for over a decade now. A whole array of projects, all of them, I realize, sort of focused on this multidimensional you, this three-sphered you. Because I write my messages from the ego cage of Enneagram 4, they invariably reflect the set and setting of that personality algorithm. Like ChatGPT, I now like to think of myself as an LLM, a large language model in the fourth dimension, where any intelligence I have is more often than not simply in service of singing the song for you, which is to say, uttering sounds that I think might please you, perhaps even trying to attract you to me in some essential magnetic booberesque way in that sort of hallowed, no space or time way. The two of us alone, but not lonely, intimately connected via voice in our bodies and souls and minds, tethered, anchored in each other, the me in you and the you in me. For as we know, both of these are storied elements that cannot really exist without each other, even if the you signifier does not ever point to an embodied three-dimension human-animal you. Although Russell refers to an external you in the song, what I think he predominantly succeeds in creating, as Rilke does in his poetry, is, to borrow an idea from cybernetics, a kind of closed-loop system. In this system, even without an external you, the work of art, be it a song or a podcast, is able to sustain a stable, self-referential equilibrium for its creator, a loving environment where all output is fluidly reintegrated as input, fostering a continuous cycle of aesthetic, conceptual and emotional resonance. Much like therapy or meditation or some other form of deep and searching inquiry. Apart from the realm of Eros, 
Where does this happen? What comes to mind is that shimmering slug or snail trail that I discovered a few mornings back, crossing the grey shagpile carpet. Or the tiny spider that sometimes emerges from behind the skirting board, drawn to the glow of my SAD lights, which I place on the windowsill in order to mimic the sun's much-missed company in this dark, cold and wet time of the year. Also, when out walking, even just around the block, sensing that I-U rhythm in each footfall, left, right, left, right, each step a potential you, a presence transferred through one walking foot to the earth and then back again like an answering call. Also music. This morning, doing my 10 minutes of downward facing dog, listening to Samuel Barber's Agnes Day, the words of the hymn, which he set to his own sublime arrangement for strings written 30 years earlier. You who lift the burdens of the world have mercy on us. You who lift the burdens of the world have mercy on us. You who lift the burdens of the world show us the path to equanimity and peace. presence in that composition, my lost and advanced beloved, just as Rilke once perceived you within the evening birdsong, in the eternal yesterday of his verse. And of course you are here. How could you not be? Of course you are. Which is why this podcast is for you. Hello. I look inside my crystal ball. And no wire rapid beats my heart I see the spark, I feel the flame of the fire Letting me know love wants to start No more playing around, no more waiting around for the special Tell me so It's you You're that angel sent from heaven above